opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning. You're listening to Ask a Leader, and I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Today, we consider Thanksgiving two ways. How is it being taught in our schools, and how is it being addressed in an interdenominational service tonight at a service in Irvine to which everyone, that's including you, is invited? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome to Ask a Leader. My guest for this portion of the program is Dr. Sharon Salinger, Humanities Professor at the University of California, Irvine, specializing in early American social history and gender. She received her doctorate in history from UCLA, then taught at UC Riverside for 25 years before coming to UCI as Dean of Undergraduate Education in 2005. She's published about a good deal of the colonial history in New England. Her first book was A Study of Unfree Labor in Colonial Pennsylvania. Later, she published about taverns and drinking in early America, uh, a bit of that sort of social interaction history, and uh, coming out within the next year with the University of Pennsylvania Press is Warning Out in New England. She'll talk perhaps uh, more about the first two in incorporating our Thanksgiving discussion uh, more than actually her later one. Welcome, Sharon Solinger, to Ask a Leader. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm glad that you can be with us today in advance of this year's celebration of Thanksgiving. And you know, Sharon Solinger, after I reflected a bit with a, a local fifth grade teacher here at, uh, nearby at Vista Verde, and after rereading parts of Lies My Teacher Told Me, What Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, and then reading uh, Sunday's New York Times travel section on the Pilgrim's Path, I just, Sharon Solger, I can't escape the fact that Thanksgiving is something of a Rorschach work of mythology and history with so many different meanings to every one of us. Is there any, um, is there any other aspect of that period of history that is so laden with myths? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it is laden myth, with myths. One of my favorite moments in Colonial Williamsburg, just moving everybody down to Virginia for a second. Please is, do, because that's part of the myth. Yes, is people come to Colonial uh, Williamsburg and ask them to see Plymouth Rock, not realizing, of course, that Plymouth Rock is in New England. So I think a, we, we mix up a lot of our kind of important historical myths about what's important to remember about the landing. And we also, I part, I think, the landing itself, the various people who come in first to Jamestown and then into New England, with sort of setting us on the path we're on today, as opposed to taking a better look at the reasons that they're coming and the reasons that they land. Well, I, and I marvel, um, I don't, I think you and I may be uh, 
close to contemporaries here on when we got our Thanksgiving education, but I, I find that what the fifth graders are getting now, um, even though they're uh, certainly cognitively not anywhere where we were by the time we finished a secondary school, that I think the fifth graders are getting a bit more intellectually honest a bit of history, even pitched to that to their level. I would hope so. I would hope so. Well, and so I don't know, uh, why Why do you think that, um, what would be the reason that for so long, I mean, this is hundreds of years later, that even when we were going to school in primary and secondary education, why would it, why would it take so long for a, a thorough history of, uh, and a presentation of primary sources be brought into the curriculum? Another really good question. I I just taught a section in the early American survey class that I'm teaching right now and was reminded that we've had periods in American history, and I'm thinking now back to the 1830s, where we have these moments of real patriotism that rise to the fore, and we really want to hold on to a myth that describes our past in a way that we can sort of rally around as opposed to be accurate or honest. And I think that scholarship in early American history has been way ahead of the willingness of either the textbooks or the K-12 through school system to want to tell a different story. I mean, it's been very important in American history to to present a myth that we can all embrace um, rather than present something that is a little bit more accurate. And what I'm thinking about now is I'm not sure how the fifth grade textbook has moved but in my own area, the way it's moved is that Thanksgiving as an idea has been around long before the establishment of the United States. Indians did it in North America to give thanks to harvest, and it became incorporated into the fabric of the various cultures, whether it was in the Pilgrims or the Puritans in New England or in Virginia. All of these places gave thanks. So I, I just think it also may have been in the past necessary, more than necessary, to justify coming to the colonies. After all, there's part of the history in which the settlers come and they take the land from the Indians, and we might want a a way to say that everybody shared in the Thanksgiving and it isn't as bad as it appears. So I don't know. It's a very, very good question. But whatever it is, it's clearly important for the United States to have had this myth, and we clung to it for a very, very long time. A really long time. Well, I I just want to bring up some things that the the fifth grade teacher is dealing with. This is uh, a a dear um, connection of mine, Catherine Jacobs. She gets credit for helping me prepare. And one thing is that she she's trying to plant seeds of what's what really was going on. She's starting to introduce to fifth graders primary educational primary resources. What's actually left behind? Uh, she, you know, with the manifest, and she's trying to show uh, how. Uh, a play that they do in a pageant, they'll be doing it this week, that the uh, in the pageant, um, the, the play takes liberties with fictionalizing what was what they actually, the fifth graders were able to see that were in the manifest, and they go, oh, okay, so the, they get their first taste of what is, uh, what's fictionalized in the whole kind of, um, the whole acknowledgement of Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. And so if it, is it to, meant to create an intact family, even though some of them didn't all make it all the way over? And she's actually, she's very um, resourceful. She's giving them a sort of a, a kinesthetic approach, to, uh, looking at the actual dimensions of the Mayflower for them to appreciate what the uh, conditions were like uh-huh. and, and that kind of a thing. So, you know, and there's nothing more important for, for primary education than give it that kinesthetic piece for some traction. Because she says she doesn't know. 
she doesn't have any idea really how much she's reaching them. She, but, she, but she gets a glimmer of that. So, so they're raising their hands when you know she's trying to have them think about, well, maybe not everybody. And you can uh, you can fill in uh, what uh, is your your uh, your research uh, telling, informing you about this. But not everybody amongst the pilgrims were actually uh, religious. Um, um, Asylum seekers, right? It was it was the majority, or not maybe the majority, but the significant number were military people. And she's in, she's actually pitching that to the fifth graders, and right. I don't think I never got any of that. It was all about that, and she also wants them to think about well. Now, really, I'm not sure. Have them explore whether the uh, the pilgrims would have been a toler- tolerant of non pilgrims. Right? Oh no, they were not. <laughs> They were totally not tall. I mean, they were ardent separatists. They were, you know, in fact, William Bradford, their governor, has really, really quite um, negative things to say about the dangers of having non-pilgrims, non-separatists, meaning Indians. He calls it the howling wilderness and describes the people there as you know, more animal-like and fearful. And, and they were afraid of them, not because they were afraid of them as not humans, but because they were not... Uh, believers in the same way, and they were a threat to their society. I mean, they they were very concerned that God's wrath would descend on sinners, and if they're sinners right outside their boundaries, that descent from God could affect them as well. So they, they, they have a right to be afraid. The other kinds of research, though, that's going on and has gone on now for decades makes it very clear that the very survival of all of these groups that land, I'm talking, again, back to Williamsburg, the Pilgrims, the Carolinas, all the way up. All of them, all of them, depend incredibly on the largesse of the Indians. If it hadn't been for the Indians' willingness to feed these people, they would have starved. And and if you're talking about power, and I don't really want to use that word because I don't think that in these, these original encounters either one of them was thinking that way, the Indians have the upper hand. They they are living well. They're not uh, experiencing disease from a long travel in a tiny, tiny ship across the Atlantic. They're not unmoored, right? They're not having huge dislocation problems, having to deal with transplanting a society. They're settled. They're successful. And they actually feed every one of these early groups. And it's, without them, it was impossible. So the Thanksgiving, if you want to interpret it that way, could be very much like that, um, although we don't really interpret it that way. We do interpret it more as the harvest and the, well, and, the and, bounty. And Sorry. James Lewin, with the, um, the text that I'll, I'll refer to a few times, because I do want everyone to have a, a good look at that, It's uh, and it keeps getting new additions out because he's always incorporating new American historical developments, lies my teacher told me. But what he makes a point is that every place name had the word field incorporated into it. Greenfield, everything had field in there as to say it wasn't a wilderness. It was a well-cultivated by the indigenous people uh, territory. So it, so the idea of a wilderness is a kind of a, it's a, a, an uh, unfair assessment, an an inastute assessment of what the kind of resources that the pilgrims landed on. Right. It's a, that's a really good point, but I would just be caution here that in terms of the pilgrims, it's a wilderness. I mean, not because it, absolutely from the Indians it's cultivated. They're very successful. They live in this pretty harsh climate quite successfully. But again, I'm, I'm trying to use the, the terminology and intellectual 
position of the groups themselves. Okay. Right? And, Fair enough. Right. And also, the pilgrims use, and this is a kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a chilling um, notion for us, I think. But because there had been groups that had preceded the pilgrims to this area, there had been some considerable devastation of Indian populations yes. based on disease. I wanted to get to that. Thank you. Yes. And they then interpret that as a sign from God that they should be there. And again, we have to take the way they think about things they're, you know, as, as, as important and meaningful, even if we, of course, disagree violently with their attitude. So they, they see, yes, they see these cultivated fields, and in fact they see the cultivated fields as another way God has uh, you know, presented the possibility for them. They, they, they forget that these are owned. And again, just another kind of important part of this, in terms of the pilgrims, and in fact in terms of all of the English, they don't see that the Indians are cultivating because they don't cultivate in a way that the English cultivate. Okay. Right? So that they see this as uncivilized because civilized means you cultivate as English cultivate. No boxwood shrubs? Exactly. Seriously, fences. I was being facetious. but No, no, no. That's exactly right. It's not boxwood shrub, but it's fencing and permanent changes to the landscape. Absolutely. The, 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 take dominion over every living thing in the Bible, right? That is part of the way in which they approach the landscape. A Calvinist piece? Exactly right. Okay. And Indians, they cultivate it with a completely different mindset and cultural aspect and view and worldview. So the, the English simply can't interpret that as cultivation. Well, I want, for those of you listen, just join us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on www.kuci.org. My guest this portion of the program is Sharon Solinger, UCI Irvine, humanities professor specializing in early American social history and gender, talking about the Thanksgiving curriculum in American schools then and now we're talking about it. Well, I also another point that is mentioned in Lies My Teacher Told Me is some of those folks from the Mayflower were on to the fact that there had been a population decimated and that they they were ready to take it over. Is that a leap? No, that's uh, maybe not ready to take it over, but they do see that. It happens when the Puritans land in uh, which becomes the Massachusetts Bay Colony also. They see it as um, a sign that the these, these lands have been cleared. They, well, I don't think they go so far to say that they've been cultivated, but they, they, they do say that the lands have been cleared, the population decimated by disease um, before them, and somehow they do take this as a sign from God that, that the lands has been prepared for them. Okay. And uh, he also mentions that uh, they they wouldn't have made it the first couple of weeks if they didn't prowl around and to some sacred burial areas to unearth, you know, crockery and things like that so that they could actually, you know, they could eat, that they could eat with, with those artifacts that were left behind in, uh, in burial sites. Well, there's a piece that I'm not aware of. Um, they did bring with them certainly the kinds of pots and pans and cutlery that they would need to eat with. But again, it's the, it's the production of the Indians that in fact sustains them. Um, they get certain items from the Indians mainly with foodstuffs, um, and they are able to prepare it themselves. After all, they're able to cook on the ship and eat on the ship. So I, I don't know about that piece. That could very well be the case, but it's not something I'm aware of. Well, um, it's uh, uh, the uh, so the children from the fifth grade level, and I, I would love to have been able to represent, you know, how how uh, the, the vaunted high school uh, programs uh, nearby are covering it. But, but the, the fifth 
fifth graders, you know, there's, there's, there is that they they go from directly from the thank the kindergarten pageant, in and there's no American history until they reach fifth grade, and so this is where this particular resourceful teacher, Catherine Jacobs, is trying to to bring in some critical thinking about you know so what 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 are these people up to uh, what and she wants them to think about that there is a defensive reaction in that there is a compact amongst the Iroquois. And you can fill us in on that. How, how the the I want to think of it, the Iroquois League are a confederation of tribes that are trying to to deal with this uh, northern European intrusion into uh-huh. uh, onto their turf. And so, uh, this fifth grade teacher is trying to give them an, uh, the children an idea of a sort of a zero sum and the kind of um, the uh, opportunistic uh, approach that the Iroquois League was trying to join together to make the uh, where they might not have before this as they were they were sensing danger and she's at the fifth grade level this teacher is trying to instill the other half of this equation for the fifth graders that they were under threat and they are going to do what they're going to do to um, maintain their status quo mm-hmm. the our understanding of the League of the Iroquois is that it's a phenomenon from Hiawatha, which everyone, at least in our generation, remembers, um, in the 15th century where uh, he was concerned about the killing among the group and how much uh, more effective they would be if they joined together in a confederacy. So it, it takes place before there's any idea of settlement from Europe. But there's also a lot of evidence that suggests that that Indians as a group, and it's really difficult to talk about Indians because, as you know, there, there is a huge and very wonderful difference among the cultures of Indians. So to say Indians in North America is a little bit of a shorthand that's masking a lot of difference. But yes. for the most part, just if we can just go from there, um, it was quite clear that the Indians were not... Um, except in very specific places, and I'm talking now up in the northern area that becomes Canada, where the Mi'kmaq were. But most Indians had only curiosity and the possibility of being able to incorporate European settlers in what was already a trade relationship among themselves. Mm -hmm, So for the most part, they did not see the arrival of Europeans as a hostile possibility. It, there was trading. Exactly. They had the the uh, Europeans had something they needed, and they had something the Europeans needed. Exactly. And so the original contact and the original relationship was one of a kind of mutual understanding that they both needed each other, and the and the Indians almost exclusively controlled the trade. They controlled the ceremony. They controlled the items. They controlled how it took place quantities, everything. But uh, Sharon Solinger, though, doesn't it, um, it makes a difference that the traders weren't, they weren't settling in for the hall. They were, they were trading, but not staying. Exactly. So we're that, talking, that's, a, that's a different threat. Exactly right. So the Dutch and the French have a very different uh, threat. But I'm also, what I'm also suggesting is that in the initial phases of even the settling in New England, it was not seen as a threat initially. It, it was the same notion was that there was the possibility of an, an, another ally for them, the possibility of new trade items being incorporated. Um, there was no, there, uh, that's initial. Now, it doesn't take very long because the major, the first war, for example, in which the Puritans try to annihilate the Indians is only six years after Massachusetts Bay is, is settled. 
So all I'm saying is that the initial, they do not initially see. Indians have a much more, they're much more able to incorporate other cultures and peoples into their cultures than Puritans were. Right, they they don't they don't have this um, sense of the other in in such a profound way. It doesn't take very long, but it happens on the ground initially. Well, another thing I found interesting in the text that lies my teacher told me is that the European lower cat lowest caste was becoming familiar with the legitimacy of the Native American leadership structure and and this is something actually the fifth grade teach the fifth graders are just getting a taste of this is that there were decisions made amongst the indians uh with with unanimous acceptance and that with the lower caste europeans were looking at that kind of governmental model as something more agreeable to them than the aristocracy under which they had been you know uh, acculturated so i i what um james leuven talks about in his book is that the uh, upper crust had to be very careful not to let some of these Europeans head off with the Indians and uh, live that terrific lifestyle way be- way before human potentialism comes. Right. By. So that's it's a very good point. I mean, I'm not so sure that I've seen that with the the separatists, but certainly in Virginia, they have to pass laws that make it a crime of a capital crime to run away and join the Indians. Right, right. And yeah. that, he talks about that. But I, I actually I needed to hop back though to the the Mayflower Compact and that was a way to hold things together on the Mayflower when things were becoming a bit unruly when before they'd landed and they weren't sure where they were going to land and all that kind of uncertainty. But the Mayflower Compact was it, it wasn't honored, though, very much uh, later after the pilgrims began to settle, was it? No, and it's, you know, on the ground, it's really difficult to enforce, right? And that's one of the main problems with all of these col- uh, colonies as they get started. They have an idea about how it may go, but then when you've got most of the people being military, and, uh, you know, and some of your people being separatists, it's pretty difficult to, to maintain it because you're not going to survive, basically, with the Mayflower Compact being what it is that determines the organization of the, of, the, of the colony. And can you break down a little bit, unpackage what the Mayflower Compact, uh, the implications were, were it to, to be observed? Well, it's... Um, it it bound them all basically to a majority rule right it, the way in which that the the mayflower the we the way we do it consent of the governed before exactly okay. right right and um what you know it, it happens of course that they were aiming for virginia they were not right. aiming for for new england it's blown off course and then what they have this compact but what happens is that they're very short on supplies. They're, it's a very, very, very difficult winter. And in order to make things happen, someone has to take control and sort of run the thing. And so the compact itself bounds, binds them to obey by a majority rule, but they can't survive by doing it that way. They have to be able to have someone be in charge and make things happen. And Bradford basically takes over and tries to make things happen, when the, and the military go out and sort of browbeat the Indians for um, for food. But uh, it it just doesn't survive very long. It's a way to it's a way to sort of make peace on the on the ship itself when things are not going well, but once they land, it doesn't. It, it's just too difficult to, to keep in in place as a way to govern the colony. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. My guest is Sharon Salinger, UCI. Um, 
UC Irvine Humanities professor specializing, as I've said, in early American social history and gender, uh, talking today about the Thanksgiving curriculum in American schools. Well, when you say early American, that's another challenge to uh, to uh, verbiage here. When yes. uh, early, like, like uh, that's the you know the question that um, I don't know what would what do your uh, undergrads or your grad students say when you ask them the the trick question who were the first ones to settle in the United States yeah that's a very good question i in fact we we spend a fair amount of time just trying to unpack as you point out the these terms early america we're uh, making a huge assumption here when right. we already start that right? right we're we're calling it america yeah it's a very nomenclature is extremely difficult um and but what we have what happens in my class at least is we just sort of settle on a, um some words saying that again it's a kind of shortcut it's not particularly accurate maybe ultimately not helpful but it allows us all to be talking about knowing what we're talking about so how do you think yeah, you know, you're the students that are enrolling in your courses that you will bring this subject around, not necessarily Thanksgiving, but the whole setting. Are they getting uh, lots of aha moments the way our our budding students at or earlier levels are are you bringing out more and more critical material that uh, more and more primary resources that talk about the the graphic uh, actual conditions and all that? Um Yeah, I I hope so. I mean, that's certainly my goal. I think the aha moment in the beginning of my class was this notion that that um, the pilgrims, the Puritans, the people who land in Jamestown do not come armed with democracy off the ship. The other thing I think that they're kind of an aha moment is what we just said before a few minutes ago, which is that there is not an initial hostility going on here. It's curiosity, it's desperate need from the colonists and for the support by the Indians um, it's not a kind of walking off the ship wanting to annihilate anyone or the Indians wanting to push them back into the ocean. I think that they see this as a kind of exploratory. It goes it goes sour, um, there's no question, as the grab for land happens. But um, I think these are aha moments that, it, in a sense, it could have gone a different way. And um, another part, uh, I, I don't know, are they getting by that time there in your classes that the... Um, the basis for the Declaration of Independence was, in fact, a Native American doctrine. Yeah, they. I do bring not just the Enlightenment. It, but no, it's right. There is there is certainly some impulse there. It's hard to see the link, but yes, we, they do see that there's some of that language is absolutely there. They also see that some of that language is not actually democratic. I mean, I'm now talking about the Constitution, of course, more than the Declaration. Right. Right. But yes, absolutely. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of amused in the, um, the for those who still have their copies or run to the library for your Sunday uh, travel section of the New York Times for November twentieth. Um, that where the one um, run writer, that's Neil Genslinger, mentions that, um, and I'm, I'm quoting him because I just thought it was so it was right on it. Actually, he says, my childhood is so far in the past at this point that I'm not sure whether I'm remembering a real kitty pageant in Bryn, Bryn Athen, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, or, or if this is more of a collective memory. So many of us were in such pageants as children that, in effect, we were all in one. In any case, he says, I now realize that this archetypal grade school reenactment is no more accurate than a James Frey memoir because <laughs> I've been talking to people who take their Thanksgiving portrayals far more seriously. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, uh, 
what um, there will be some. It'll be they'll be they're being done right now all over the uh, the country uh, in in schools and from kindergarten through I'm sure well through the beginnings of the of primary education, and so I don't know if there's if you Sharon Salinger have some recommended reading materials for people uh, either whether it's a collection of primary resources for people to get that sort of the graphic sort of feel for what was actually going on past all the myth or, uh, you know, good interpretive kinds of works for our listeners. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I'm embarrassed to say I... I... Oh, well, it's not, we're not going to put you getting in any embarrassing places. Well, right. what you can, I mean, you're giving people an idea about the colonial setting. The, the taverns and drinking in early America gives us an idea of just what public space is like. You're going to talk about, uh, what you're talking about, warning out, uh, that some people didn't have the safety net they could rely on um once uh what what were those conditions when they were um when that they were met with being warned out warning out is a is a legal trigger in all the colonies really but mostly in new england where if you wandered into another town from where you were born and you needed employment and what years roughly so it ends at about the time of the revolution okay but it starts when does it start it starts it starts really when the colonies get founded but it's enforced really in the 18th century okay a and, bit later right and the the period that we're looking at it most effectively is just at the period before the american revolution when after the seven years war there's an enormous amount of poverty in the, in the colonies and that people are moving around for jobs but it sounds a lot more harsh than it is in a sense, but what it does is that if you wander into Boston, for example, a clerk of the city of Boston would come in and say you have 14 days to depart the town. And what this does is he puts them on a list then and says that if you are poor, we will not support you. Ironically, what happens, though, is that if you are poor and you are from somewhere else, they will support you from the province account, from the colonies account, not from the city of Boston. So what they're trying to do is protect the taxpayers of Boston from having to pay into the poor relief of people who are not their own. Um, so there is a safety net in a, in, a, in a kind of weird way. And if you're from a, another town in Massachusetts, they might put you on a cart and take you back. Oh. So that, that's the, that is the, um, that's the mechanism. I, I, I'm sorry to do this. I want to go back to Thanksgiving for I just want, a second. No, this is the point of the whole interview. Yeah, so. let me just go back for a second. Because one of the things you were pointing out to is the travel section and the pageant. And I just want to say that it, kind of ironically, perhaps, if you were going to do a pageant from the way we think we've put together the Thanksgiving um, celebration of the pilgrims would be that the pilgrims would sit down to the table first and then invite the Indians to sit down and eat afterwards. Um, and that is, seems to be the way it may have worked out. I'm not sure that's a kind of uh, uh, pageant that you would want to occur in the classroom. The pilgrims are down for but the but the 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 Native American people though were providing before the pilgrims could sit down. Right. Exactly. So that, that yeah. So it's a kind of an ironic uh, moment in the event sequence. Well, that we don't they we don't think they sat together to eat. Okay. Well, that were the would the Indians would they have used a table even? Um perhaps if they had been invited to sit at the table with them, I'm sure they would have. They they that's not their that wasn't their style. What was their style? Their style was uh on the ground with food shared sort of communally with both hands. Yeah. Exactly. That's right, because because the the utensils weren't a part of that. But, right. But there are great pictures of this. There 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 are some phenomenal 
paintings from John White that are on the web that people can see. He comes with the first Roanoke expedition. They're just superb paintings. He tried very hard to not only capture what people looked like, but what their accoutrements looked like, what their living situation looked like, what their My tools word. looked like. And they're just spectacular, and they're v- totally available on the web. And Sharon Salinger, how is, I don't know this name. John White's name is spelled how? White. W-H-I-T-E, just as you would imagine. Oh, okay. And he comes in 1585 with Roanoke, and it's just wonderful paintings. He tried, as I said, very, very hard to capture. He was He was the person who was supposed to... Um, capture the uh, the um, the trip basically. In he terms was the of reporter, exactly. But he did it visually. Um, someone else did it in words, and he was uh, asked to bring back as much as he could, much information he possibly could about the people and the plants and their living situation. And so he has them in positions of eating, positions of cooking. He has their uh, their dress. It's it's really a remarkable collection, and we know that court painters can certainly fictionalize their subjects. But you're you're here going out on a limb to assure us that he's being very honest with his tub, his exactly. subjects. Yes. It, it, so again, it's a very very important thing to remember. He yes. does it with the, through the lens of a European looking at right. these Indians, right? So, but he so but he does try as hard as he possibly can to capture what it is that. Um, he sees. Well, so that we, that that would be somewhere between a primary and a secondary resource, but, um, yeah. I guess, complemented with some of the written work. But I I know that um, we have to wrap this up. I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk about all the richness of the mythology and all the the history that we can continue to, to track down to and enrich in our intellectual honesty and thoroughness in, in um, you know, engaging in this whole topic. So I want to thank uh, Sharon Salinger for being on the show today. Thank you very much. That's Sharon Salinger. She's UCI professor of history and dean of undergraduate education talking about Thanksgiving and how it is being taught at all levels in the United States. Stay tuned. We'll be back in the second half with Reverend Paul Telstrom from the Irvine Unified Congregational Church. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. This portion of the program, we are fortunate to have as our guest, Reverend Paul Telstrom. Every year at about this time of the year for the last 23 years, the Reverend Paul Telstrom of the Irvine Unified, um, well, he's been doing this over the last five years of the 23, but Reverend Paul Telstrom of the Irvine Unified Congregational Church joins the good Rabbi Arnold Rockless for the service of Thanksgiving at the University Synagogue. All the particulars everybody's going to know about throughout this interview because everyone, all of you are invited. This particular year, the Olive Tree Initiative people will be brought in on part of the program. Reverend Paul Telstrom received 
his uh, Bachelor's of Science from Syracuse University and Master's of Divinity from Claremont School of Theology, where he also received the Claremont Distinguished Preaching Award. He was for 11 years with the board of the HopeNet, an interfaith nonprofit organization dedicated to eradicating hunger and homelessness in Los Angeles. He was the immediate past president of HopeNet, an agency that's grown to form a network of 12 food pantries and six feeding programs and so much more. In addition, uh, there's also some low-income housing. He's also Reverend Paul, Dr. Paul Telstrom, the recipient of the 2001 Paul Rothman Humanitarian Award. He was previously eight years with the senior, the senior minister of the Mount Hollywood Congregational Church. He comes um, since the year 2006 um, to the Irvine Unified Congregational Church, bringing a higher level of social activism to a congregation poised to do more than they already been well known for being involved with. And so uh, for those in the know, Reverend Paul Telstrom's lower portion of his face and his collar were no, were identifiable at various uh, news outlets that would be maybe the Newsweek, Wall Street, Washington Post, New York Times, where he was manning the phone banks in a campaign to defeat Prop 8. Today, I wish to welcome Dr. Reverend Paul Telstrom on Ask a Leader. Welcome. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for the opportunity to have me on the show. I appreciate it. It's wonderful timing, and I'm so glad I was made aware by not one but several of your congregants of this particular service, and I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Well, can you tell us, Reverend Telstrom, how did this service of Thanksgiving all begin? It predates me so much, but it has a wonderful history. Um, Several years and many years ago at this point, I, I know that the story made the Los Angeles Times that uh, this church, which is the Irvine United Congregational Church, um, decided to team up with a synagogue that was nesting in uh, our space and a small mosque, in fact, um, that meets here on Fridays and still does. And I, I think the uh, article was called... Um, a trifecta of uh, interfaith or something like that. Okay. But a, um, a, a very important relationship ensued between uh, Christians, uh, Muslims, and, and Jews. And um, this is a, a very important facet of, of who we are at this church. Um, the synagogue um, became quite successful and uh, found its own space over on uh, uh, Michelson and, and near Harvard, Right there at the uh, intersection. We'll give everybody all the particulars, because that is yeah. the venue for the service again this year. It's a former skating rink that they brilliantly turned into a, a, a lovely worship space and uh, schools and um, all, all sorts of uh, facility there. Um, and so we, we've kept this kind of historic friendship at this point. Uh, they come to us. Uh, last year they were with us here in the sanctuary, which is a homecoming for many of them, because they, they grew up in our church. And then this year, it's our turn to go over there. Our uh, combined choirs will get together with our choir directors. Uh, Arnie and I uh, will lead the, the service. And as we try to do every year, we have a special guest. Well, this year, it's the Olive Tree Initiative from uh, UCI. We've had them before. Uh, we're just so thrilled. It's so uplifting to see these younger people wrestling with issues in, in very, very thoughtful ways uh, towards um, attaining peace. 
And there, for those who haven't been familiar with, and I wasn't able to get a representative uh, lined up from the Albert Tree Initiative for this interview. They're they're all they're booking and getting ready for tonight or teaching today right now. But the Olive Tree Initiative, it's it aims to promote dialogue and discussion regarding the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I think their forte is this empirical training, giving them a real, you know, taste, a real experience of uh, uh, this whole conflict going. They were all of them in uh, is in Israel. In, uh, and the and the West Bank this last summer, and so that there there are many of them fresh off of tremendous life changing experiences, and so they will be incorporating their piece into this um, the Jewish Christian dialogue on the world we live in as, as the title for today's service of Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for those of you just joining us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. My guest is Reverend Paul Telstrom, pastor of the Irvine United Congregational Church, talking about tonight's service, which starts at 7.30, and it's it's promised on the uh, University Synagogue website. It goes from 7.30 to 9 o'clock. All the general public is welcome. I I really uh, will be there, and I'll be happy to see any listeners who um, said they heard about it here and, and uh, or noticed elsewhere. So I wanted to know, Reverend Tilstrom, what message? I know you're working on this. Right, we're, we're stealing a whole half an hour away from your morning of crafting your message. But what message would you like to present in the service this year? Well, I, I'm actually not presenting a message, nor is um, uh, the rabbi. Oh, I misunderstood. We are, the message will be coming from the Olive Tree Initiative. But okay. What we do is uh, to uh, guide, uh, to set up the tone and help guide our two congregations as we come together and uh, name the things that we're thankful for this year. And uh, a lot of that is this continued friendship between us, uh, the dialogue that the, the church and synagogue have had for decades now at this point. Um, and a lot of it is um, you know, catching up with old friends at this point as we view each other um, and lifting up um, publicly in this arena uh, that which we can give thanks for in yet another very difficult year in our country's history. So yes. um, that's that's generally the tone that the rabbi and I will be setting. So it's it's just like you two, the, um, the activist uh, clergymen um, in our community who are going to give the the congregants, the public, a chance to to take um, take on take over on on in their own leadership role. Sort of fits the, fits our show too, and so um, I um, I noticed that some of the congregants talk about this is one of their favorite services the yeah. whole year, at, at the, and that they reflect on previous uh, services. I think it was Roger Cohen from the New York Times was here. Was it last year or a couple years ago? Yeah. Talking. Um, a, from with uh, I think it was Pacifica and the Muslim Institute about um, a, another sort of Middle Eastern divide there. Yeah, and um, a favorite of mine a couple years ago was uh, we hosted Mike Farrell from ah uh, uh, yes from Mash. Well, that's how I I know Mike Farrell, but he's become extremely active uh, in anti death penalty uh, work um, and uh, is involved with death penalty focus and. Uh, he was he was magnificent. He spoke here to a, a full house a, a couple years ago, and there was a spontaneous uh, offering taken at the end to help him with his work uh, uh, for death penalty focus as he continues to uh, lobby against and speak against um, the use of the death penalty in, in our country. 
we've had Ezra Klein, uh, who grew up in the synagogue. Um, oh, yes, I know him well. Yeah. Or of him well. I know his family. Yes. And Ezra, Ezra made very good with uh, uh, social political analysis in, uh, in the major mainstream outle- uh, media outlets. Yeah, and it's remarkable because when you meet him, he is such a young man. I think he was 23 when he was speaking for us. And, uh, and just this depth and breadth of knowledge, uh, he's made a mark. Yes. Uh, it was a real treat to have him, and also that he's, he's a, a son of the, the, the synagogue. That's right. That's right. So I want for everybody, we can give some, post some details so people know why, while we're talking, know how to get there. That is the, at the University Synagogue, and um, the website is, of course, www.universitysynagogue.org, and the number to call, we'll, we'll flood their phone today, at, at 949-553-3535. The service will start at 730 and it's at the social hall. I guess it's not going to be in the sanctuary itself. Or no, I guess service, that's not what you call it. The will be in the sanctuary. But when the service is over, we retired. They open up the doors in the back to the social hall, and we all have uh, a time to uh, to chat. And, and people stay. People oh, stay yes. and talk. So uh, I think uh, anyone who comes would be welcome to uh, have some refreshments. And uh, they, they do a lovely job over there. And uh, uh, stay and talk. I'd, I'd love to meet anyone who comes. There'll be a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. And Always. the uh, as you may have already mentioned, I think, the University Synagogue and the Irvine Unified Congregation... Um, United. Irvine, what would I... I would be thinking of the school. The Irvine United Congregational Church, uh, both of their choirs will be there, and Cantor, is it is it Breyer or Breyer will be singing? Uh, uh, oh, Rudy. Rudy is, um, is actually the spouse of the, the rabbi. And uh, the first time I heard her, I was knocked out. Uh, she is, she's an amazing talent. Uh, and, and we never know what she's going to do. It's not in the program. She will come with something beautiful for us tonight, as she does every year. And, and she I, accompanies I herself a, by, with her guitar, no? Yes, she plays the guitar. Uh, she, she can do just about anything. But, uh, and she's just a lovely, lovely person. Um, and I'd put a plug-in for my choir. I have managed to find myself in a place that has one of the best church choirs I have heard anywhere. And um, I, many of them are coming out for this tonight, as well as the synagogues, and they enjoy getting together. The two music directors enjoy each other's company, and the choirs um, really enjoy coming together to work. They've been practicing separately, and tonight they'll rehearse together for the first time. And I, while we talk about this, Reverend Tilstrom, uh, what is it that you would like those in attendance to come prepared and to come to contribute to this particular service of Thanksgiving? I think, first of all, it is wonderful to find yourself in an atmosphere that is interfaith and unstifled. There is a genuine um, affection back and forth it's a group of people who don't talk about but talk to each other. And uh, to, to me, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in upstate New York, and then I lived on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And for me, this is, it's, it's, uh, it's fresh air. For, for me, I, I refer to this as my own synagogue. Yes. This is, this is the place uh, where um, I feel nourished uh, when I'm with these folks. And um, 
I, I, so I, I think people come and can see that what, what, you're, what you're experiencing, what you're in the midst of, is, is real and genuine. And uh, today, when we're, we're having so many difficulties getting along in so many ways, it's, it's refreshing to see that it can be done. That's A. And B, these young people that are coming are Muslim, Christian, Jewish. They're going over to Israel, and they're, they're talking with... That's the Olive Tree Initiative. We'll the Olive Tree it's... Initiative, right. These are folks who, who um, in very, very thoughtful ways, and, and so young, are going over and um, speak, uh, speaking with a group of um, Palestinians about their perception of what's happening. They're, they're speaking with um, Orthodox Jews about their perceptions. There doesn't seem to be any rancor or side-taking or whatever. It's, it's simply the desire to, um, to know, to understand better, and to offer um, a peaceful uh, solution after a very careful analysis. And, and, and I've seen different kids come in. I'm sorry, they're not kids. Every year I get older, they look younger. Uh, <laughs> these, these young graduate students and undergrads, um, uh, they're a different group, of course, as it rotates. Um, but to see what's dawning on them as they speak uh, about the situation and and their thoughtful response to it is leaves you feeling hopeful. I noticed too about them when I've met them uh, on the UC Irvine campus. It's and you're you're talking about it, alluding to it a bit, is having experienced what they have in the Middle East, they come back. Their disposition isn't an um, and it's not a Pollyanna expression, folks. It's it's a it's a knowing, it's an appreciative disposition as opposed to a, a them and us kind of uh, disposition. Absolutely, I think you put your finger on it. And so, uh, and I, I marvel that the sort of like, oh, I you know, I I'm a, I can't believe what I ex- I can believe what I experienced because I experienced it, and nothing's going to be the same ever since. And they they become, uh, I don't want to say ambassador, but they they become emissaries of you know, so maybe a more intellectually honest way of looking at this otherwise intractable problem. And, and fairly dispassionate, too. I, I have never seen yes. uh, feelings uh, going all over the place. I, I, I've seen it. I keep using the word thoughtful, but, but that's, uh, that's what I sense from this group of young people. And, and that is what makes me so hopeful and uplifted. Uh, I've now been in their presence. I, I think this is going to be the fifth time. Uh, and I was just knocked out when they first came to our church. They've been here a couple times. And this is the second time we're having them uh, at the synagogue, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, they had a, a whole presentation the last time. I think it was a slide presentation, and each of them spoke. I think that's what's happening tonight. Uh, several, uh, there's going to be five, I think, okay. uh, of the folks, plus Paula Garb, their faculty advisor. Paula's teaching right now, folks. I try to get her on the show, but um, with the, we have to probably pre-record some kind of things with these faculty that teach during the time I do oh, air sure. my show. I understand. And, and she'll be here. Um, and uh, each of the young people will have a few minutes to speak, and then it'll open up. And uh, Reverend Tilstrom, how do they um, support themselves to get all the way over to to uh, Jerusalem and West Bank and back? Is that um, do, does the community help um, uh, support them, or how did the how does that initiative make that part work? Do you know? You know, I don't know. We'll have to I, ask. I we'll would, find I out. I would be making it up. So let no, no, me, I'm okay. not going to put you on the spot there. <laughs> but uh, because it's, I mean, I, it, these these kinds of excursions are, uh, you know, they're not. A minor financial kind of outlay, so um, it's 
it's a lot of commitment they're they're making to go do this. Well, I I think it's going to be a lovely program. Um, we're talking right now to one of one of the halves of the the clerical halves of the program, the service of Thanksgiving tonight at the Irvine Irvine's University Synagogue at the intersection of Michelson and Harvard in Irvine. It starts at seven thirty and goes till about nine o'clock. You can call at nine four nine. Five five three thirty five thirty five, and as I said, the other one of the halves of the the clerical pair that will host this service of Thanksgiving preside will be is my guest right now, Reverend Paul Telström, to be more svensk, uh, pastor of the Irvine United Congregational. It's Irvine Unified. I keep Irvine Unified. I had it right the first time. I can't believe this. So um, I uh, want to uh, make sure everybody is knows that they are welcome. I will be attending, and I we're going to have a rare opportunity to listen, to engage, and to think beyond and outside of the uh, the box here with uh, what's not working. You know, I think this 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 particular kind of arrangement and what the the Olive Tree Initiative about is about Reverend Tilstrom. It has that kind of um, there's the symmetry of what the mythology of Thanksgiving is trying to bring up. So, but the symmetry we're going to we're going to come together and we're going to make this work. We have to. That's right. It's as if our lives depended on sort of like that that first go at that meal. That's right. And and for us it's it's important because the congregational churches came out of the the Puritan background in in New England and we are actually the descendants of the pilgrims and and the Mayflower and that whole uh, the, I, I will say mythos to a large extent, but uh, there's there's truth to the story as well of uh, of people who came for religious freedom and uh, who, after all of the deprivation of their first year in a new land uh, and the loss of half their number, uh, decided that they still had much to give thanks for. Indeed, they did much, and I am very thankful and appreciative of you being on our program today. While I know you have so many projects going on um, when I, I want to, for people to take a look at the Irvine uh, Un- United uh, Congregation Church. Um, it's IUCC.org, and you can find out all the remarkable things that are planned. There was a, a remarkable, it was a, a bre- there's a Bread for Journey series, uh, a series of various um, community activism um, projects going on um, at the congregation at IUCC, and I don't know if, um, did you want to also mention what you'll be talking about next Sunday, Reverend Tilstrom? Well, uh, first, Bread for the Journey is something new for us. It's it's a reach out to younger folks who may not be churched or uh, may not like to stand up and sing old hymns, which is something we do, I have to say, and we love them. But uh, it's on Sunday nights. The first Sunday is a worship service, and it's it's very experiential and hands-on. It's done by our uh, young associate pastor, Elizabeth Griswold. And then the third Sunday is um, is a kind of a social justice project. Uh, the Sunday they had a hunger banquet. Um, now, in, in terms of this Sunday, the whole church is being dressed for Advent. Everything's in purple, and we will be moving into the first Sunday of Advent, which is the period of watching and waiting for uh, for Christmas, which is, boy, it's coming faster than we know, isn't it? Much, much uh, faster. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we've had a kids' choir sing last Sunday. We have uh, our full, uh, actually, this coming Sunday, our choir is off. But I encourage people to come and hear them um, 
it's about 40 voices and uh, under just wonderful direction. We have a history of good music. Very good. Well, I really appreciate your keeping this kind of an institution going so strong and with with such, uh, you know, amazing content like what will be provided at tonight's service of Thanksgiving at the University Synagogue, that is with the Irvine United, United. I don't know, I've, Congregational Church uh, and the University Synagogue and uh, joining the sort of the headliner um, movement and organization will be the Olive Tree Initiative, and there will be students there along with the their mentor, um, sort of director Paula Garb, um, UCI um, social science professor, Reverend Paul Tilstrom. Thank you very much for being on our program today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All the best. And I look forward to seeing you this evening. See you tonight. Take care. I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Ask a Leader. Um, I want you all to have a hearty and a joyous Thanksgiving. Rose George Rosales is up next with his George Had a Hat. Thank you.